Begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you another weeknight, another evening, reflecting into the richness of our faith. Tonight, it is Tuesday night, so we, we have the opportunity to continue our study on just not church history, but as we've been talking about over the last five weeks, the great Christian thinkers in history. And really, before we even touched upon any one person, if you were to draw back in what we talked about the first two weeks, it was really about why we study history, uh, what is history. And if you've been a faithful listener, you know that I've been doing this with John O'Hare. And John, it is good to have you back this week. Good to be back, Joe. Thank you. Yeah, and you know, we had uh, George last week, and we had the opportunity to talk about the Gospel of Mark and the person of Mark. And uh, he, he did well in your stead. <laughs> He's a bright man. Yeah. So with that, John, we know we've, we've spent time talking about history itself, and then we spent two weeks with Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, then as I noted last week, Mark. You know, what are we doing here? We're still laying the foundation. Really, it's, it's a 10-week a, a uh, module, if you will, where we're going to lay the foundation Two topics of why and what is history, two weeks in Matthew, one in Mark. We're going to spend the next two weeks in John, and then three weeks with Luke and then the book of Acts. Now, now, why would we do that? See, if you're to go into history and kind of take a step back once again and appreciate Scripture, history in Scripture, that is to say, there are certain books that would essentially, if you read them, would carry... Uh, the historical narrative of salvation history. Uh, so if you were to read in order the books of Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, uh, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Ezra and Nehemiah, Second Book of Maccabees, 12 Old Testament books really carry the historical narrative, John. The two books in the New Testament that do that are the Gospel of Luke and then the Book of Acts. Okay, so what we have there is ultimately a 14-book historical narrative. And I thought, you know, if we're going to uh, really allow these 10 weeks to carry us into history, post-biblical period, uh, we would be well-served to look lastly there at Luke and the book of Acts. Post-biblical history all deals with these books. Yeah. A knowledge of these books, and not only more than a knowledge, a catechesis and just a buying into them, into your heart. Yes. You're not going to know history unless you know that. Well said, and that really highlights this, uh, this chronos kairos, John, that we've been spending a lot of time on, the chronos man's time, you know, linear time, uh, horizontal time, kairos, God's time, grace time, vertical, yeah. Hey, chronos is necessary for cause and effect. That's one of the things of history. But Kairos is why we are religious. Yeah, and it why gives... Why we're Catholic and Christian. That's right. It gives proper shape and form to what Kronos looks like. So, again, it's, it's to say that uh, man, 
the great John Paul II, we can never forget it. You know, history is more than just a series of chronological events, but an event of man, an event of freedom. And so this is why we take up the importance of these individuals. And today, of course, as we're setting the foundation with the first four evangelists, we have the opportunity to talk about John, who's widely regarded as the theologian. We're going to wrap up our program tonight with a brief reflection on that, John, but um, we're going to spend all week with what that means next week. But today, we're just going to spend some time on the person of John uh, and really focus in on the importance of who he is as a person and where we see him uh, and why it is important to look at him in relationship to Peter and James. So with that, what does the word or name John mean? Simply, the Lord has worked grace. Mm. A man that was caught up in the Spirit, the Lord has worked grace. And he continues to work his grace through him. Uh, in his calling, we saw that he was immediately uh, he immediately responded to our Lord. Let's take a look at Matthew's a Gospel, chapter 4, verse 21. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. You may want to compare that to the story of the rich young man. They left their boat and the nice life that they probably very well would have had and followed him mm-hmm. to the end. Yeah. Yeah, and that's a, it's always mindful to be present of these callings, <clears throat> be present to these callings, John, because it is easy to forget that these were real human beings in history who had a way of life who were providing for a family, who essentially were in relationships with, with uh, mother, father, yeah. parents, and all the rest, and yet they just sacrificed it all. You know, they left their boat. And to, to leave your boat as a fisherman, that's your whole way of life. That's all you know. And this is what he gives up. I mean, how often do we today, John, you know, we're asked to do something and we say, okay, let me think about this. And certainly we are called to discern a lot of our major decisions in life. But mea culpa, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll tell you, far too often we sit and discern far too long. Sometimes Correct. God just says, here I am, yeah. follow me. And part of this is a disposition, John. You know, here you have... A wonderful example today is, of course, the solemnity of, of the Annunciation. Yes. Mm-hmm. So here we are, we are right to talk about this great angelic salutation to Mary where the angel asks Mary to be the mother of God. And she was disposed mm-hmm. to say yes. She had this interior attitude of faith. And by that I mean she was in relationship with God. She was disposed to respond immediately. Let us remember In the Gospel of Luke, just before we have the story of Mary, we have who? Zechariah and Elizabeth, right? Same angel comes to Zechariah. Now, the comparison is necessary because one exercises their questioning in a more secular sense, where they're doubting. How can this be? The other responds to the the salutation with a, a questioning in the truest sense of what the word means to seek to understand. One was ready to respond, the other was not. 
Good point. Now, Mary also had a choice, and she could have said no. I mean, this was... Yes, but she, yes. But she did not. Thank heavens. And today, by the way, uh, March the 25th, nine months before Christmas. Yes. Now, uh, later on in John's Gospel, the Pharisees, well, I guess many times say, can you prove to us you're a God? Again, faith, same person that John and James responded to, they did not. There's a lot of this in faith and accepting what's in front of you, and we all kind of have the same chance. Jesus was Jesus to the Pharisees as well as to James and John. Amen to that, John. It's far too easy to forget about that. So we look to Mary as this model disciple who says yes, who gives us this great fiat, yes, to God, mindful that our Lord comes to us, and maybe not with the same you know, vocation to be you know, a parent of the Son of God, but ultimately a dignified vocation nonetheless. We all are called to enter into this personal relationship with Jesus Christ, and we need to be disposed. That's the word, you know, in the Latin, disponere, ordered out from a relationship, right? So, disposed to respond to God. Matthew's disposed. John, here, he's disposed. And they leave their whole life. You know, it's, it's a uncalculated yes. It's a, it doesn't measure. You know, it doesn't say, well, uh, Jesus, excuse me, um, let me go back to, to my, my, my home pad and, and get my stuff. And do... No, it's just, I will follow you. Yeah, it's it, beautiful. An unbridled yes. So very important. And, and I, I cannot hammer this home enough just because this is why we are spending the time with these figures to appreciate their yes, their choice, and the freedom they've been given. Just as you have said already, God has called us. He called John. I mean, not we're not talking the circumstances being the same, but I was called, and how thoroughly am I willing to say yes is a question I have to ask myself in my prayer Yeah. and in my regular life. That's right. And we all have to ask ourselves. Amen to that, John. Now, as we move forward through uh, the life of John, it's interesting. It's actually the Gospel of Mark who offers for us a, a kind of sequential look, if you will, to um, the relationship between uh, Peter, James, and John, that in fact you have these three disciples, these inner three, who have a certain closeness to our Lord, if you will. Now, the question begs to be asked, is Christ picking favorites? No, no. He's simply exercising his authority because these three have unique roles in the early church. All 12 our apostles, all 12, have certain vocations, but there's a uniqueness to these figures. And certainly, we already know about Peter. We've talked about Peter. And as we talk more about John today, we'll talk more about James in a few weeks. But it's to appreciate the three, if you will. Someone says to me, well, five people can go to study for the priesthood, and uh, you know, three are, they stick around to be priests. They've discerned their call to be priests. Are, are they different than the rest? Their vocation is, yes. <laughs> yes. But does it make them any less or more special? You know, ultimately, that is to the degree that we embrace our relationship with God. There are saints in the church on both sides of the aisles, if you will, as far as the ordained and the lay. And we have to take up this vocation that God has given us, whatever it is. Unknown to us, maybe some contemporaries of Peter, James, and John, who lived a very holy Christian life and died and may be very high in the estimation of heaven and Christ. We don't know their names. There are no churches after them. We don't have a feast day for them. But they they 
they, they obeyed God's call. They had humility and they obeyed God's call, and there they are. Amen. Very well said, John. Yeah, I mean, and we forget about that. Yeah. We forget about that, and yet they are up there singing in the choir. <laughs> right, yes. So, in regards to this relationship, you know, Mark, again, is the, is the apostle that does a nice recording for us. We have in the opening chapter, verse uh, 29, Peter, James, and John going into um, the house of Peter's mother-in-law, and there she is cured. So, these three have this close encounter, if you will, with God's authority and power. Uh, the, the raising of Jairus' daughter, little girl, arise, another encounter with Peter and James. And of course, the transfiguration, yep. the gospel from a few Sundays ago, this wonderful transformation um, where these three have an all new kind of encounter with the Son of God. And then we see more uh, examples of Peter, James, and John, where these figures are beside our Lord at the Mount of Olives as he's overlooking the city of Jerusalem and talking about the end of the city and the end of the world. Now, what's interesting about this, John, and what's really important for us is that John the Evangelist experienced the power of Christ, the authority of Christ, this spirit-filled, transforming power of Christ up front and center. And then as the gospel narrative carries it out, he begins to experience the other side of the peak and valley journey of the Christian faith, if you will. He moves out from the transfiguration into the valley, where he's now at our Lord's side at the beginning of his suffering. He's uh, there close to him in Gethsemane. A uh, little uh, note here, incidentally, John, as I'm thinking about this, you know, we're in Lent, and it is important to, to drop a few lines here as I'm looking down on my notes. You know, the word Gethsemane, it literally means in the Aramaic, uh, oil press. Right, oil press, the amount of olives, what's extracted right. from olives. The idea here for some of the church fathers is oil was symbolic with mercy. Mercy. So it was going to be through the beginning of this passion narrative that we would begin to understand and appreciate what God's mercy looks like. That any time we encounter any kind of anguish, terror, suffering, if it means us going deeper into our relationship with God, it is God's mercy. Unconventional, very paradoxical, but mercy nonetheless, right? Yes. And oil does play a part in the story of Christ. Remember the woman very who spent a fortune yes. who put oil on Christ, and the three wise men brought some oil. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. A hot desert, that's very important to have yeah. that There's, oil, yeah. This healing power, this healing power. Uh, and even the word, you know, we talk about agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, the, the word in the Greek, it, it means mental suffering, certainly tied to Christ, but it also means uh, a struggle for victory, to lead in the battle. So what's happening here is Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's going through this profound mental suffering, this mental anguish, this horror of what he's going to have to encounter. But he must, for the victory over the enemy, to lead us in the battle. And who's at his side? Yeah. John, uh -huh. the beloved disciple. Who's at the foot of the cross? John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So we have John. There he is with the, the, the curing of Peter's mother-in-law. There he is. 
the raising of uh, Jairus' daughter, there he is, the transfiguration. He's experiencing the glory of God. He's experiencing the wonder and the magnificence of God. And then he experiences the other side, where he's there in the garden, where he's there at the foot of the cross. Uh, So it's a tough image for a lot of us, but if we're going to experience God's glory, then we must pass through the cross. It's just... It's just the Christian vocation, you know. Uh, the, he was able to do that, and it's amazing and how he was able to get deeply into Christ and see both of those almost simultaneously that they fit together. And it comes out as we go through his gospel and certainly his later writings. Yeah, yeah, and it's no wonder that Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, it's uh, yes. chapter 1, and I think verses 12, 13, 14, I believe, where you know, Peter and J- James and John are the pillars, are, are the pillars, you know. Uh, so now, as we're talking about this, I've already used the phrase, the disciple uh, whom Jesus loved. I want to go to uh, Jesus' parents to disciples uh, by the Sea of Tiberias, where he revealed himself on Tiberias. Oh, yeah, and something, yeah, yeah. something interesting happens here. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, have you any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in for the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, said to Peter. Now again, John is referring to himself, that disciple whom Jesus loved, he wishes to place an emphasis on friendship with Christ, the importance of being a beloved follower of Christ. And he points out to who? Peter. Look, it is the Lord. So why is this important? Because all throughout church history, John, we have church fathers, saints, doctors of the church, remind us of this relationship between the hierarchy of the church, that which Peter represents, and the contemplative side of the church, that which St. John the Evangelist represents, that ultimately it is the contemplative that sees God. It is the one who is in constant prayer that sees God. And the hierarchy of the church is in need of that contemplative prayer. The hierarchy of the church, the popes in history, have leaned upon the importance of the religious communities all throughout the world who spend their days on bended knee interceding on behalf of the church. That is one of the reasons I found John so attractive, is his insight into the spiritual depth of Christ. He is the first one to see Christ on the shore. Isn't that interesting that his vision saw him? Isn't it interesting that someone who says, put your nets on the other side, these are experienced fishermen. Wait a minute, the fish on the starboard side are the same as the fish on the port side. What kind of nonsense is this? And by golly, look what they catch. John recognizes this. And then uh, Pope Benedict XVI named his first epistle, Deus Caritas Est, after a line from John. God is love. And John realizes that is what God is. And to be a good Christian, to be a good bishop, to be the caretaker of Mary, love is at the forefront, because it was for Christ. Yeah, and love that is rooted in friendship. Our Lord, those who are friends, imitate me. You know, the, the, the full measure of love is sacrificial. Christ's love on the cross is agape, this this total gift of self. And certainly this is what 
John is talking about when he says God is love. And this is an important piece for us, John, because we are made to see as readers of this gospel and as one who are drawn in to better understand who St. John is, it's about the fact that he was the beloved disciple. It's about his friendship and how he gained inner access, if you will, into the divine courtroom and knowledge of God. I mean, we use the word knowledge, uh, information, and we think that these things are noble, but in the end, you know, it's, it's about wisdom. You know, we had the, uh, the temptation narrative a few Sundays ago. Satan, he has supreme intelligence. He has supreme knowledge, but he does not have wisdom because wisdom is synonymous with the bended knee. Exactly. Yes. And he doesn't, he's not obedient. He's not humble. So it is wisdom that we're after. And the beloved disciple, anyone who would dare to call themselves a beloved disciple must first understand that it always starts with bended knee. You hear a lot about evangelization. What is the number one key to evangelization? Living a good, holy life. Not necessarily go around preaching, although if you can talk well, that's nice. But being authentically holy and Christian, that is at the heart of it. And I'm sure you've all heard the story Matthew Kelly told about the man who, uh, whose company was failing, and he had to write a speech, and uh, he was going to deliver it the next day. And his wife said, honey, would you watch our seven-year-old? i got to go out. Yeah, okay, I will. <laughs> seven-year-old says, Dad, I'm bored. I want to do something. And he's a seven-year-old. And the father says, okay, son, here's a map of the United States. Tears it up and do about 50 different, or 20 different pieces. Okay, you go to the next room and you put it together. Kid comes in with a map, with, with the map put together in about two or three minutes. How'd you do that? Kid turns it over. It's a picture of a face. That's how the kid was able to assemble it. And that's how we, and now Matthew Kelly used it, it's not me, to evangelize. It is who we are as a person, the face of Christ that we wear all over our body. Yeah, that's a great story. I remember when I first heard that, it's a great story. <laughs> yeah. You know, John Paul II says, you know, evangelization is, is the proclamation of the gospel, it is the instruction of, of the faith, but it is first, it is first the contemplation of truth. It is first contemplatio. It is first where we look at Jesus and Jesus looks back at us. It's the face, right? Oh, yes, <laughs> at, the, at the other side of the paper. Because there is where we draw deeper into the very mystery of who God is. That just kind of gaze from from God and God back to us that draws us deeper. And this is the gaze that the beloved disciple wants us to see. You know, if you were to go into the old Byzantine iconography, there's some famous images of uh, St. John the Evangelist. And the most famous by far is this man who's in intense contemplation and he's pointing his finger as one pointing to someone to go to silence. Now, this is the kind of narrative and the Mm. teaching that goes with this icon. He wants us to see that if we're going to be able to see God, we must first be in intense contemplation. Uh, this is a real mark of who St. John the Evangelist uh, was, Good and point. certainly worth our while. If I can throw in a little side point, yeah. his story about Nicodemus in chapter 3 has always intrigued me. You know, the nighttime visit, and here's this guy who, you know, he's questioning, but how can somebody be born, how can I come out of my mother's womb a second time? And Christ explains it to him. And John recognized the value of that story and told it. And I don't know, for some reason, just maybe me, well, a lot of people like that story. I, I mean, there's lots of other good stories in John, oh, too. Oh, sure, 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 but yeah. that one has, all that nighttime story has always struck me as being someone who understands 
the questioning, and the answer, which is a little mystical, but it makes sense. Nicodemus was was with Christ at the end. Yeah, yeah, and he would have been certainly going back and forth with uh, with Christ. It's it's definitely this this dialogue that reveals a beautiful point in regards to the sacrament of baptism. But seeds are being planted in this dialogue. <clears throat> Excuse me, because if you were to go into the few verses before chapter 3, we read something really interesting, that uh, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did, but he does not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And then we have the story of Nicodemus. You know, and Nicodemus arrives when? Uh, during the night. He doesn't want to be seen. So there's something really interesting going on. He's entering into this dialogue with our Lord, into this inquiry. He's certainly curious, but at the same time, he seems to be someone representing uh, one who lacks faith. But, yes, a seed has been planted. He leaves that uh, encounter, and he's been made to see something new. And we know it had an impact on him because there he was in the end. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's right that you bring that up because he was never going to be there in the end, John, if he did not inquire, mm-hmm. if he did not ask, even if he was struggling with it, mm-hmm. even if he didn't get it or understand it. And clearly he didn't initially, but he left that thinking, okay, something's going on. Yeah. And in the end, he was there. And so it's a, an important point because as we talk about you know, St. John the Evangelist, as we talk about all of these personal encounters he had with our Lord. It's the end goal. Yes. I mean, what in the end, John, is our vocation as children of God, but to give glory to God and see him face to face? Now, John and James left their net and followed Christ immediately. It took Nicodemus maybe a little bit longer, but he got there. And all of us have the call and the time is... Yeah, and so you know, the great Christian vocation is to is to give glory to God yes. and to summon man into personal relationship, and in our uh, call to go forth and our call to to preach and, and to teach and to and to evangelize and catechize and all the rest. Maybe we will see people come into the Christian and Catholic faith. Maybe we won't, but at the very least, we need to be thinking about planting seeds that in the end whoever we encounter uh, may come to see uh, the fullness of truth. Do you remember that quote of Mother Teresa? It's not being successful, it's being there or being trying. Now, that's not it, but she said it very well, whatever it was. Yeah, it's not being successful, it's about loving. I know, yeah, it's about loving, ultimately, and not worrying about tomorrow. Yeah. Well, I think our time's up, John. Certainly, our, our program tonight will kind of open up the much larger discussion on John, who is the theologian, uh, next week. Understanding that when, you, when we talk about a theologian simply defined as one who's faith-seeking understanding, and John offers for us some very rich, rich images and of what it means to really soar you know, with God. He's called the theologian because he gives us the principles to help us go, go deeper and deeper in our faith. Uh, so I look forward to that next week, John, with you. I and with that, let's close in prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.
You've been listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening from 6.30 to 7 p.m. right here on KKXX. If you have questions or feedback, you may email Joe at j-h-o-l-l-j-m-j at yahoo.com. For a copy of today's program, visit joeholcraft.org or call KKXX during regular business hours at 894-7325. Thanks for listening to the Seeds of Truth on KKXX.